Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dune Class 7. Uh, I, we are uh, uh, almost halfway through Book 2 here tonight, uh, uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking a bit about uh, the uh, his Paul's fight with Jameis, which is, of course, a major turning point in his career. But um, first, I just wanted to mention, uh, thanks, several of you have sent in proposals that I was invite as I was inviting you to do last week. That was really great. Um, I, I think we have we definitely have enough for a panel now. Um, we've gotten a whole bunch of proposals uh, in in general, uh, several dozen for uh, uh, for Mythmoot this year. We've been very um, uh, we've been very uh, 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 very fortunate. Uh, I'm very excited about uh, the enthusiasm that people have been showing. Um, it's going to make for some hard decisions, I think. But we're uh, I, I'm just uh, uh, excited to uh, both to read through them more and uh, to be planning our program and then uh, you know to be getting to see so many of you um, in Baltimore in January so uh, I'm pretty excited about that I'm thrilled by the programming as we're working it out I hope to be able to uh, announce a little bit more about the MythMoot program uh, soon within a couple weeks we're uh, now sort of uh, sorting out some things and getting a draft of what we're planning to do so that should be a lot of fun I'll keep you uh, I'll keep you posted on that um Okay. Well, tonight I wanted to. Uh, I, I was sort of uh, shocked by the fact that last week somehow I, I seemed to manage to have actually gotten through pretty much everything I wanted to talk about. It took me by surprise. Uh, normally, the first thing I do when I'm planning my next class, of course, is go through and say, "Okay, wait, uh, where did I actually end? Uh, you know, how much do I have to go back and try to, from last time and try to incorporate that in?" Um, <laughs> Patrick Summer says, "Wait, what did we all do wrong?" Exactly. I mean, it was it's pretty it was pretty odd. So I'm just going to actually start talking about the stuff from uh, today's reading. In fact, um, and one of the things that I wanted to do tonight uh, is look at a few passages uh, from Princess Irulan. Not in the same way that we were at the end of Book One. I still want to do that in a couple weeks when we do our next uh, sort of between book. Uh, Q&A class, but um, I would like to uh, I, I would like to look at a couple of the passages in, in, in detail. In particular, this one is one I was very interested in, uh, from Arrakis Awakening by Princess Irulan. This Fremen religious adaptation, then, is the source of what we now recognize as the pillars of the universe whose Kizara Tafwid are among us are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms, but stamped with the new awakening. Who has not heard and been deeply moved by the old man's hymn? I drove my feet through a desert, whose mirage fluttered like a host. Voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab, watching time level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches, and was caught on their beaks and claws. Okay. A couple things. First, I want to I I talk about the prose bit <clears throat> first, and then I want to talk about the poetry bit second. Um, what do we see here? 
What do we see in her contextualization? This subject, of course, is one that we've talked about before. She's touching on um, a little bit indirectly, but she's touching on this, you know, the question of prophecy uh, that we've looked at several times in particular. Back when we were looking at that, um, the great Kynes chapter, when Kynes is sort of in the process of being won over by Duke Leto, but also by Paul, and more importantly, I think, um, by that realization which he's attempting to fight off, but having a hard time resisting, um, that Paul really does seem to be the fulfillment of the prophecy. And of course, you'll remember we looked at all of those passages. Um, and one of the things that has been an issue from the beginning of that particular theme has been the sort of conflict between the... Uh, Bene Gesserit view, right, which Jessica has, I was about to say voiced, not exactly voiced, thought about in our hearing, um, uh, that is the work of the Missionaria Protectiva and the sham, as she calls it, which she seems to feel guilty about keeping up or manipulating, but yet nevertheless she sees the utility of it and knows that this is what it's for, um, and the way in which she sees the Fremen as clearly well, she wouldn't say the victims of this, but they were the targets, anyway, of the deliberate manipulation, the premeditated religious manipulation of the Bene Gesserits. But, as we were looking at throughout that, there seemed to be these moments, even in the midst of Jessica's own thoughts about this, which seemed to call this into question. So here's Princess Irulan commenting on the Fremen religious adaptation. Um, and the Kizara Tefuid, those are, those are uh, Fremen priests, uh, according to the appendix, um, who are among us all with signs and proofs and prophecy. Um, what do we make of this? What's, what's her tone? What do you, how do you understand what she's saying here? Now, of course, we have to be careful, and this is where the titles of her books come in so interesting, as we were discussing a little bit before, um, because, of course, in different contexts, she speaks in different ways. To different audiences, she speaks in different ways. Um, it's a little bit hard to tell how Arrakis Awakening, um, what kind of a work that is, exactly. But, um, I... So that, I find the kind of context that the title supplies for this a little bit ambivalent, actually. I'm not really sure how to take it. Um, Tom asks, which religious, which Fremen religious adaptation? Uh, this sounds like the conclusion to some previous argument. Yeah, Tom, these are some of my favorite of Princess Irulan's passages are the ones where we're obviously, you know, not ones which are just like quotable quotes, right? Um, you know, here's a passage from the Princess Irulan because it's so, uh, uh, you know, because it's so apt, uh, you know, it's so apposite to the situation. Um, but rather, when you can tell that you are in the middle of the flow, or, you know, it gives the impression of being in the middle of a flow of a larger work. Um, and I love that, Tom, because it gives that that really tantalizing sense. You know, it draws me not just to try to understand what's here, but to try to conjecture, you know, it seems important to try to figure out what is in the rest of this book, right? What argument is this the conclusion of exactly, Tom, right? Um, and I, that's one of the reasons I really like uh, this passage. Um, 
Michael Cheskovsky says she seems to be talking about the beauty of a prophecy that she knows is fake. Why do you say she knows it's fake, Michael? What what is it exactly in this passage that gives that impression? I'm not saying I necessarily disagree, but I want to be careful. Um, what would we base that particular conclusion on? Because there are two different two different elements to your interpretation, right? You know, one is that she is really trying to emphasize the beauty. That seems to be relatively clear. But the second is that you know, she's doing that despite the fact, or because of the fact, or whatever, that she knows that it's fake. Um, yeah, Michael says she's been trained by the Bene Gesserit, so she should know about the Missionaria Protectiva. She certainly does. I, I think we can assume that pretty safely. But does that mean that she necessarily believes that the Fremen religious adaptation is fake? In fact, Michael, I could make a counter-argument against that and say... That's what she means by adaptation. When she's talking about this Fremen religious adaptation, then, how I take that is the way that the Fremen have adapted the legends that were handed down to them, even though she knows the source of many of them, but that there's more to the Fremen religion in the end than simply the product of manipulation. Um, I hope to get back to this idea at the very, very end of class, but we see more than one moment, more than one uh, situation in which the Fremen are... Somebody sits out to manipulate the Fremen and their manipulation backfires on them. Where the Fremen go is in a very different direction than the direction in which uh, they were... The manipulator was attempting to take them. Um, so that alone, I'm not really sure. Um... Uh, Michael says there seems to be a seeming contradiction in how a fake prophecy came true. She seems to be speaking from after-knowledge of that fact. Yes, exactly. But w w how? How has the knowledge, the after-knowledge, of the fulfillment of those prophecies impacted her? Um, does she still is, she still... is she still cynical about it? Or has she become convinced? Does she see you know, yeah, the missionary protective planted this stuff, but in the end, this thing turned out to be bigger than that. Is that her attitude? Or is she still cynical about it? What do you think? Again, now, what, what I would challenge is that the safest ground that we can build on here is this passage itself. Is there anything here in this description? What in these words, not just sort of assumptions that we might bring, again, because we know she's Bene Gesserit, but, um, but what from the way she talks here might lead us to conclude that she's speaking cynically or, 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 or not? I mean, you know, how can we, how can we, what kind of conclusions can we make about her attitude based on this text right here? So let's see, I know, let's see uh, some more, uh, some more input here. Um, Okay, good. Kevin uh, Morgan says, the tone is very different from the main book. It's almost a conspiratorial tone. She knows her audience is more urbane than the Fremen one. I agree. Uh, she certainly seems to be talking about the Fremen to non-Fremen, right? Um, she's certainly sort of talking around them in one sense, and to people um, who 
might think that they see beyond the Fremen, in a sense. I, I'm trying to characterize... I'm trying to put my finger on the thing, Kevin, which you were pointing to when you were talking about urbanity. Um, uh, a word with which it seemed... He, Kevin put ellipses around it, by which I'm concluding that you also were not fully satisfied with that word. Um, Tom Hillman suggests it's uh, two other Bene Gesserit academics. Possibly. Possibly. Nancy Fosberg points out it's not a detached anthropological tone, but it doesn't sound like she's really participating here either. Um, Nancy, I agree. I find the tone in that sense indeterminate. There are places where we can hear Princess Irowan adopting that kind of an anthropological tone, right? Her doing an assessment of, of, of the Fremen and of Paul's interactions with the Fremen and all that stuff, right? I mean, I, I think that that's... Um, anthropological seems exactly right as a way to describe her tone in some of these passages. But I agree, not fully in this, but I agree... Instead of saying not really participating, Nancy, I'd be tempted to say it doesn't sound... She doesn't sound like a devotee. She doesn't sound like a true believer, right? Um, she doesn't sound, like, rapturous or anything. Um, uh, anyway, so, so, but, but I agree, the tone seems to me to be somewhere in the middle there. Um, yeah, Philip Menzies suggests that there's, so, that there seems to be more of an emotional response, uh, than, uh, uh, in this passage than in many of the other ones, that much of her other prose is quite dispassionate. Philip, I think it's a great observation. Dispassion is another good way, I think, to characterize the sort of standard tone um, of uh, of Irulan, uh, that is, of, of her sort of standard prose style. Um, good. Nancy points further to uh, her, you know, her saying, who has not been deeply moved... Um, that implies that it moves even non-believers, perhaps also that she isn't a believer here, who has not heard and been deeply moved by the old man's hymn. She does seem to suggest that she, too, finds it deeply moving, right? She She's already described the stirring music. Um, uh, you know, what the uh, Kizara Tafweed bring them, right? They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, Whose profound, she, she describes it as having profound beauty. She talks about uh, its music being stirring. Um, she talks about, you know, taking for granted that everyone has both heard and been deeply moved um, by this hymn. So um, that's where, you know, Nancy, I would sort of point to that mixture, right? On the one hand, she's talking about this stuff. There's still that element of of an analytical approach, right? But but it's not complete. It's not simply, as Philip says, it's not simply dispassionate. She is, you know, recognizing that it that it affects her too. Um, but again, there's still an element of detachment. I think to some extent that suggests this is not, you know, a uh, she's not writing simply with fervor here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. Kevin uh, Morgan says, I think she uh, she's saying the, uh, uh, the Kizara Tefweed are taking advantage of a source of power that they don't fully understand. Um, one of the other... Let's see. Nick Marasso uh, says... Um, 
Yeah, good. Exactly what I was just going to say, Nick. Uh, that the the where she talks about them, the Kazar Tifweed, uh, being among us with all signs and proofs and prophecy, um, sounds condescending. Nick says, and I agree. There's there's something there. Um, that that also sounded sounds at the very least kind of wry, right? If not actually cynical, it does sound a little bit. Uh, um, uh, distant, and with the faintest hint, or at least the invitation to mockery, or at least to resistance, you know, one is almost tempted to put air quotes around, you know, signs and proofs and prophecy, right? Um, as if this is what they're selling, but she's not really buying it. But then, in the next sentence, she talks about what they have brought and its profound beauty and its stirringness and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, 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 don't think, I don't think we can be too extreme in our interpretation here. It does not seem to me that we are getting a perfectly detached and completely cynical Princess Irulan here. Um, though, again, this is where I am wondering about the context of the book, Arrakis Awakening, um, that it seems possible that the frame of that book, um, to characterize what happens on Arrakis, you know, presumably this whole sequence, right, this whole sequence of time when Paul goes among the Fremen uh, and becomes Muad'Dib and the Fremen rise, um, this is what she's describing in the title as the Arrakis Awakening, right? Um, well, here, notice I just, like, slipped a definite article in there as if there was one, right? There isn't. Um, it's not the Arrakis Awakening, though, again, I do think that's one way to interpret it, right? Um, you know, this book is about the awakening that happened on Arrakis. But, of course, you can also take it as the awakening of Arrakis, not just the awakening that happened on Arrakis, but Arrakis itself, awakening. So, noun... Uh, uh, you know, noun and verbal, right? Arrakis, awakening. Um, the waking up of Arrakis. That sounds less clinical, again. Um, but does that betray, perhaps, the audience of it? Is this a book written for believers? Um, and therefore, in her tone in which she's talking about like the profound beauty and the deep being deeply moved and all that stuff is uh is her writing for that particular audience i don't know i guess in, to me it seems that the, the title i think is it's all i think they're always really important but as i say this is the one that i i have the hard, hardest time putting my finger on um because it seems to me a really important piece of context here who is the target audience uh of this passage um uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nancy says it makes her wonder about uh, her politics. Yeah, mine too. Or me too. I, I, I also wonder that. Um, yeah, well, let's look at the uh, the poem. I've mentioned before that I'm not a huge fan uh, of uh, Herbert's poetry, um, though... As many of you will know, I would never encourage you to skip poetry in any book. Um, I'm not. I'm not a, a huge fan of Herbert's poetry. Um, this one, uh, 
uh, at least has uh, is is I, I find a little bit more interesting metrically, um, even though you know I like rhyme, but whatever. I drove my feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host, voracious for glory, greedy for danger. I roamed the horizons of Al Kulab, watching time level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrows swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches, and was caught on their beaks and claws. Okay, what is this? Um, what is this uh, uh, poem about? Um, yeah, uh, Kevin. Uh, Kevin Morgan is trying to defend the poetry. Um, Kevin says he is, of course, trying to write in the style of an alien desert people. It's supposed to be strange and sparse to our ears. I agree. I, 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 I'm to I would to be totally fine with uh, uh, an element of strangeness uh, in, the in, in the poetry. I think the reason that I'm generally not a fan is that I find it too uniform. Um, I would love for Gurney Halleck's songs to be significantly different from Fremen poetry, for instance, but I don't find it so. Um, and I know that might be asking a lot, but hey, I do ask a lot. Um, what can I say? Tolkien's poetry has set high standards for me on this regard. Um, but um, anyway, anyway. But but having said, I'm not a, I'm not an enormous fan. Um, that's not to say that I think that there's nothing in it. This one I think is particularly interesting. Um, uh, I mean, after all, everybody's deeply moved by this, right? So the first question is exactly the question which Tom very uh, Tom Hillman very sensibly starts off asking: Who's the old man? I mean, if it's the old man's him, who's the old man? Um, who is the old man? Well. Um, in context, right? Don't start giving me answers from books two or five or... I don't care. <laughs> Not relevant. Not relevant. Um, what... From the context, why old man? What, what, would, what do we associate with old man? I don't think we're given any reason here to associate this with any particular old man. Um... But notice the context. Um, remember, we have just gotten in, what, the sentence before that. Um, we just got these references to the old and the new, right? So when we have a reference to the old man's hymn coming right on the heels of talking about the old and the new, um, that seems a good place to start, right? So let's go back a bit. They bring us the uh, Arakeen mystical fusion, whose profound beauty is typified by the stirring music built on the old forms, but stamped with the new awakening. Um, and at, to illustrate this, she points to the old man's hymn, right? Um, so that's kind of interesting. So uh, um, I'm tempted also, and maybe this is uh, um Maybe this is uh, simply totally inappropriate associations that I bring to it from medieval experience, but um, uh, you know, the old man seems to me quite likely not to be a reference to any particular person, um, but rather to a kind of a concept that is the sense of either 
an old man that is an old man who is coming to the end of his life, who has seen many things, and he is reflecting on stuff, right? That would be one possible way in which a sort of a generic old man uh, could be the, the, the centerpiece or the spokesperson of this hymn. It could be old man in a different sense. That is, we're talking about, the whole paragraph was about the sort of establishment of a new order, right? So the old man could also, in that context, be a reference to the old way of thinking, right? People from the old regime, people from the old world, right? Before the new world came. Um, uh, and that seems another likely uh, way to uh, to see it. Um, without any obvious antecedent for the old man, that is, you know, without any actual person clearly to point to in the context that we're given here, um, that kind of a, a of a generic or sort of symbolic interpretation uh, of the old man um, seems to me to be the most. Uh, the most likely. Uh, Nancy also is pointing out how the context in uh, within the poem itself also seems to talk about the old man simply because he's old, like it's the song of a person who's been around for a long time. He's old because he'd been watching time-level mountains, as Nancy says. That That's exceptionally old. Um, um, yes, yes. Um, that, that it's a song about uh, age, in a sense. Um, about aging or from the perspective of aging, that would be another sense in which it could be the old man's hymn. Um, Okay, okay. Um, So let's think about it again here. What what's going on here in this poem? What are, um, can we divide it into um, sections? The first rule, um, my first rule of poetic interpretation, um, and this might seem like a really simplistic rule, but I find it is always important not to skip it, and I'm always surprised by how many people do. First is to understand what the words are actually saying. Um, try to try to make sure just we're understanding the words and the images and the sentences, um, because of course most of them do, and this one certainly does have stuff like grammar in syntax. So, what is the actual um, actual content of this poem? Um, it's a first-person speaker, right? I drove my feet. In context, we seem likely to be able to uh, assume that this is the old man speaking, in some sense, whoever the old man is. Um, uh, Philip says he is every old man. Uh, yeah, exactly. Philip Menzies also wants to remind us of the race consciousness, uh, which is such a big deal, um, which also makes the old man interesting uh, in that regard. Um you know, yeah. So, uh, so Philip, sort of thinking, not just like a an old man, but uh, sort of like man the species from of old in that sense. Yeah, maybe. Um, okay. Um, Kevin Morgan also points out that Shai Halud is the old man of the desert. Yes, yes. Um, but let's see. Okay, all right. We've got. He's driving his feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host. What does that mean? Like a host. What's the simile? He's comparing the mirage of the desert to what, exactly? Yes, an army, I agree. Host, not in the sense of, like, you know, somebody who is 
being hospitable, but host in the sense of army. And that's pretty clear from the next line. Voracious for glory, greedy for danger. That presumably applies to the host, right, that he sees, or thinks that he sees. So it's the mirage of the desert that fluttered like a host. So we have the desert being associated with armies, but it's a, it's a mirage. Does that mean the army isn't real, or that the army is, like, practically invisible? Um, voracious for glory, greedy for danger, I roamed the horizons of Al-Kulab. Oh, hang on a second. Oh, we have tricky syntax, right? Voracious for glory, greedy for danger, at first, sounds like it's modifying host, right? Whose mirage fluttered like a host, voracious for glory, greedy for danger, right? But no, those things, those phrases modify I, not host. It's the speaker who is, uh, uh, who is voracious for glory and greedy for danger, apparently. So that then invites us to view the first line a little bit differently. I drove my feet through a desert. Um, uh, doesn't, uh, you know, we could take that in various, well, what is the attitude of the, you know, is this a person who is suffering? Um, uh, is he driving his feet through a desert in the same way that, you know, Legat Kynes with no still suit is driving his feet through a desert? Or, you know, uh, or, or you know, in various sort of different attitudes. Um, in this sense, if he, the speaker, is voracious for glory and greedy for danger, then driving his feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host sounds more aggressive. Like he's taking on the the, ar- the army of you know the army of desert single-handedly because he's voracious for glory and greedy for danger. So you've got like old man versus desert, right? And him taking it on, roaming the horizons of Al Kulab, which we don't know what it is. But that's okay. We don't need to. Um, Watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. This I find interesting because it's a sentence fragment. Again, I know how pedantic does that sound, right? But this I always find that this stuff is important in the end. Um, it's interesting, not because you can't use sentence fragments in, in poetry. Some people do, but the, it doesn't generally. Um, that's not the shape of this. Again, notice the syntactic shape of this poem. I drove my feet through a desert whose mirage fluttered like a host. A fairly simple sentence. I mean, it's not a simple sentence. a complex sentence, technically. Um, But again, it's it's a fairly straightforward sentence, I mean. Then we've got that cool syntactical thing, you know, that that fifth line, uh, third, I meant third line, which is sort of syntactically ambivalent, right, which looks like it could modify the thing before, but actually modifies the thing after. We've got two two two-line sentences, both of which are, again, relatively straightforward sentences. Then, watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me is a fragment. Then, and I saw the sparrow swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. Not a sentence fragment, though starting with a conjunction is interesting. They spread in the tree of my youth. Simple sentence. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws. Simple sentence. So we've got... This is 
in other words, this does not seem to be a poem which is fundamentally constructed on sort of snatches and fragmentary images put together. Some poems work like that. That doesn't seem to be the way that this one works. In fact, if uh, you know, uh, if the stress that I'm putting on line three there uh, is appropriate, then it's actually using syntax in some kind of cunning ways. I think to uh, uh, to 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 almost imbalance the reader to sort of challenge it. Like, if you don't pay attention to the syntax, you'll misinterpret it, right? Um, and in fact, confuse the uh, the voracious, the you know, the the glory, hunger, and the greed of the old man for the greed of the desert itself, right? And you sort of, uh, you know, get confused about that. I like that, but but in the middle, syntactically, it falls apart. We have first, first the sentence fragment, then the kind of we stumble on to the next sentence, and I saw the sparrow swiftly approach. Um, so that the irregularity there is something that I find interesting. I think it's I think it's important. Um, both the fragmentary nature of that central sentence, and then the the sort of stumbling into the next one. And I saw the sparrow. You don't need that. You could just say, I saw the sparrow swiftly approach, bolder than the onrushing wolf. That would work perfectly fine. Nobody would notice. But we have the ant there, right? Which, again, following after. So that one little, you know, starting the sentence with a conjunction, that one little piece of syntactical awkwardness coming as it does on the heels of the only sentence fragment uh, in the poem seems to me... I, you know, again, just really to kind of emphasize uh, emphasize the point. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay. All right, so... Uh, okay. Uh, Michael Cheskowski is suggesting a chiastic structure for the poem. Uh, kind of. I could get into that. Chiastic structure means uh, it refers to the Greek letter chi, which is which is an X. Um, so a, 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 a poem with a chiastic structure, you know, sort of is symmetrical around the middle. Um, uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, certainly, I think it's it's to me a little conspicuous that that fragmentary image is at the middle, it seems to me even more conspicuous that the fragmentary bit at the middle is the bit, Michael, as you are pointing out, about time, right? And time-leveling mountains. So the poem, which is called The Old Man's Hymn, and remember, there's nothing in those first four lines to suggest agedness on the part of the speaker, right? I mean, you would certainly assume, if you didn't have the title, that this was a, 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 a young and active person, voracious for glory, greedy for danger. Um... But then we get the business with time in the middle, right? Um, and that's where the fragment is, watching time-level mountains in its search and its hunger for me. And I saw the sparrow swiftly approach. Um, so, in, uh, caustic structure, kind of, uh, kind of, um, certainly a turning point there. At, at the very least, I think I, I, think I would say that. Um, uh, Nancy says, should we assume this was composed as a written text fictionally? No. Nancy, I don't see any reason to assume that. Um, in fact, the cues that were given by Princess Irulan are quite to the contrary, right? Um, it's in the context of her just talking about the profound beauty of the stirring music um, uh, of the Arachian mystical fusion and introduced by her saying, who has not heard? 
um, and been deeply moved by this hymn. So we are presented with this as if the primary experience of it were um, were an oral experience rather than a visual experience. Um, Nancy points out, so all the punctuation and so forth is Irulan's. Alright, I, I, I'm following where you're going here, Nancy, now. Okay. Maybe. Uh, I hesitate. And the reason I hesitate there is, uh, that is to say, I like that idea. Um, I, lo- I like the idea. I find it extremely appealing to think about interpreting certain elements, in particular this kind of syntactical divisions, as being uh, Irohan's editorial approach, so that we could actually, through the poem, therefore begin to try to actually piece out, uh, to sort of see, in a sense, an example of Princess Irohan interacting with and even shaping, literally shaping in this sense, syntactically shaping, um, a piece of this Erekine er- mystical fusion. Um, I love, absolutely love that idea, Nancy. I don't feel 100% justified in doing it, though. Um, uh, I don't... F- yeah. If somebody were writing a paper in which they were saying in which they were using that as a pivotal point, that if someone really... If I were sitting at a conference and somebody were making the argument, Princess Irohan definitely put in these periods, and therefore we can draw conclusions about her attitude based on her editorial touch upon this poem, I would respond by saying, maybe, but that's not definite, right? The fact that it is presented as an uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a listened-to song doesn't mean that there isn't a printed text that she had available. It doesn't prove that she actually did editorial work. It's possible that she did. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, whoever has logged in as Sarum in the White, whom I suspect to be Ed, um, uh, says, Erekine mystical fusion sounds like a new type of emo music. Uh, I agree, actually. I, I, I think it does sound... I think that Arakine Mystical Fusion would make a really interesting name for, like, uh, uh, I don't know, some kind of indie band or something. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, all right, but several of you were very rightly trying to draw our, our uh, to move us along to the sparrows in the latter portion of the poem, which I agree that we should do. Um, Tom Hillman points out that the comparison of sparrows to wolves is not too common. That is, I saw the sparrow swiftly approach bolder than the onrushing wolf. Um, Clearly, we do have, Tom, a a sort of deliberate... um, uh, um, a a deliberate kind... Well, not, not a non-sequitur. Why am I blanking on what I'm trying to say? Um, It's counterintuitive. That's what I'm trying to say. Deliberately counterintuitive comparison, right? Um, When the sparrows swiftly approach, we don't expect them to be ferocious. So the point 
seems to be the unexpected ferocity. These things which you thought were sparrows or which appear to be merely sparrows turn out to be bolder than the onrushing wolf. Um, and we know that this is not merely an appearance that is, you could say, well, no, notice it's only describing this, the swiftness of their approach. Their boldness is only bolder than the onrushing wolf. It doesn't say that they're more deadly than the onrushing wolf or more ferocious or, you know, like more dangerous than the onrushing wolf. Um, but, uh, but we, it turns out, as we see in the last line, that indeed they are, um, and those that the comparison is more than just to the boldness of their approach. That in fact, this concept of sparrow and wolf is uh, um, is intended, in, in, intended relatively broadly. They spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches and was caught on their beaks and claws. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Philip Lord is recalling the rabbits and the bees. Uh, I was thinking of that too, Philip. Though again, it's not the same, right? There, there were you know the two different uh, sets of people were being compared, uh, you know, uh, by the Baron to rabbits and bees. Um, which seemed odd, of course, as we discussed at the time. Um, here you have. Um, not two different groups of people, one being characterized by sparrows and one by wolves, but um, sparrows themselves being compared to wolves, and which seem to be as ferocious in uh, catching them as wolves. Um, What do we make of the tree of my youth? They spread in the tree of my youth. I think I get this. I think I do. At least I have a theory. Um, it might be too simple. But uh, uh, Michael points out, and a couple other people have mentioned as well, uh, have mentioned as well that um, uh, none of these animals or vegetation would be expected on a desert world. Um, I agree. At least the metaphors, <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the imagery, imagery, I should say, more broadly... <clears throat> the imagery of the poem has shifted away from the desert and the mirage at the beginning. Um, uh, that seems to be um, that seems to be pretty clear. I agree. Um, good. Nancy is pointing out the way that it shifts the tree metaphor. Um, in the tree of my youth, uh, the speaker seems to be. It's a little, that line's a little bit unclear, right? They spread in the tree of my youth. In what sense is he referring to his youth, thinking back over his life, and comparing his youth to a tree? In, the, in that sense, talking about the tree of my youth. But Nancy's pointing about the significance of the next line, I heard the flock in my branches. In what sense, my branch? Now he's a tree? Uh, okay. That's interesting. So the sparrows are landing on him? Or something? Um, Michael points out... A r- Arrakis Awakening could refer to the future blooming of the desert world. Possibly. The context of what Irowan is talking about through the prose seems to be talking about the sort of spiritual awakening on Arrakis. You know, in the context of talking about the Kizar Tafweed and all that. Um, 
but um, um, perhaps, perhaps. The sparrows sound, remind me of the Fremen. Um, sparrows that approach swiftly, bolder than the onrushing wolf. Um, certainly, like the Harkonnens, for instance, mistake the Fremen for mere sparrows, that is, small creatures of little account and nothing to be feared, though they're all over the place, right? I mean, you know, your lawn could be littered in, in sparrows, and unless you've watched the Hitchcock film very recently, you're probably not going to think anything of it or be at all threatened by it. Um, so they mistake them for sparrows, but it turns out they're really wolves. But wait, there's more. Um, yes, Philip Lord, exactly, I agree. Philip says, the sparrows in the trees make me think of the jihad. Exactly. And Michael, this is where I come back to with the non-desert imagery that we get at the end there. Um, we have already seen, through Paul's prescient vision, uh, several glimpses of um, um, of the coming jihad, of the Fremen um, being at the very least, the spearhead of, you know, the coming uh, war, which is going to sweep over planet after planet. Um, if the sparrows are swiftly approaching not only people like the Harkonnens there on Arrakis, but people in other planets, in this case, it could be them spreading in the tree of my youth, which could be a metaphor to this place where I grew up, which would be not on Arrakis, but somewhere else. And they spread in the tree of my youth. I heard the flock in my branches um, and was caught on their beaks and claws. The sparrows have invaded the tree. Um, um, no, Philip, that's not a spoiler. We've heard about it. We've heard about the jihad. Uh, uh, Paul's had visions of it already. The wild jihad when a making a path of blood across the cosmos. Uh, he's, this is, this is what he's, several times already he has been afraid of. Um, so, um, so yeah, so the, 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 the idea, as Kevin Morgan points out, you know, thinking of, of awakening, you know, now in, in several different senses, um, that they are, they're, the Fremen are waking up and they're going out, um, yeah, yeah, a sign of the jihad is exactly, you know, I, Kevin, I think you were typing that as I was talking. It's exactly how I'm thinking of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, and Tom Hillman says, and so this use of metaphors from other worlds marks the new awakening. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, notice that the fate of the old man is uncertain. Um, that is to say, was caught on their beaks and claws could mean that they killed him, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, right? Um, he was caught on their beaks and claws, um, captured by them. I mean, remember, back to the beginning, we have the old man driving his feet through the desert, right? <clears throat> um, and roaming the horizons of Al-Kulab. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Interesting. Sharon Powell is remembering, thinking of the branches as uh, and recalling those decision points um, uh, in 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 Paul's life, the branchings uh, of the paths that he is is going down. Um, 
and shown in a sense that might be another loose association between this and uh, and the jihad, perhaps. Um, yeah. Um, Patrick asks, could they be protecting him from the wolf? I don't think so, because the birds are the wolves. At least they're bolder than the wolves, um, than the onrushing wolf. You would have to then understand that comparison as they're actually being a separate wolf. So the sparrows are approaching swiftly. There is an onrushing wolf, but the sparrows are bolder than that onrushing wolf. I don't think so, though. It doesn't... That's... Maybe. Um, I don't incline to that reading, though. It it seems to me more... uh, sort of clearer just simply to see that as a metaphor. Um, uh, Well, simile, really. uh, To describe the sparrows. Um... James Stevens asks exactly the question um, that I would ask. How is this a hymn? What is being celebrated? Yeah, that was going to be my last question here. Um, who has not heard and been deeply moved by this? W- moved how? Exactly. Moved how? Um, how What's the point of this of this poem? Um, where does it go? Where does it bring us? Where does it push us? It, if we are being invited to connect ourselves and our own experience in some sense with the speaker of the poem, with the generic old man, um, then what do we get from that? Um... Yeah. And Michael asks, what exactly is a hymn? This is a good question. I mean, and certainly I would say, what exactly is a hymn in this context, right? Um, You know, even if we're familiar with hymns in a modern Christian context, that doesn't necessarily mean that that word has the same meaning to Princess Irulan, right? Um, uh, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to answer that. Um... come back to that sentence fragment at the middle watching time level mountains in its search and its hunger for me as that pivotal point, right? That turning point of the poem um, I mean it seems relatively clear that we have the th- you know, this this poem is in three different parts, right? You've got the, the first part with the old man in the desert the third part with the sparrows in the tree and then that central, you know, fulcrum of time-leveling mountains in its search and its hunger for me. He who is voracious for glory and greedy for danger, um, time is hungry for he, 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 he may stand up against the, the desert host, uh, the mirage desert host, um, but time is coming for him. Um, uh, Noel says uh, it's an everyman poem and thus a hymn to life and death. I, I think so. Um, I think so. Um, I think that that's one way to understand it. Though 
especially from the context that it is given, that is, that this is in a sense a, a, a hymn which Princess Erewhon is pointing to, as sort of typical of that Arakeen mystical fusion, right? Um, it encapsulates something of the religious awakening of Arrakis, so that, in, in, in other words, Noel, again, I agree with you, but it seems to push a little bit past that, right? Not just everybody's experience everywhere, but that there's something particular to the Arrakis experience here, or a way in which the experience of everyone is informed by um, by Arrakis, and by the awakening of Arrakis, the way that this has sort of uh, spread. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Nancy uh, Fosberg points out it's also built on old forms with which we are not familiar. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that does make it a little bit more challenging. Um, based on the what we see in the poem and the context from Princess Irulan, my tendency is to interpret this as a description not of the Fremen point of view, but of the non-Fremen point of view of the way in which others who are not the Fremen have been impacted by the Arakeen awakening. Um, notice the, the, the use of we and us by Princess Irulan here, right? She is speaking on behalf of the non-Fremen, right? Um, what we now recognize are among us. They bring us the Arakeen mystical fusion, right? Um, and I think that this hymn sort of speaks for that perspective, speaks for those people. Um, which is why I think it's really interesting, then, the sort of returning to the desert imagery there at the beginning, and that sense of facing the host of the desert, right? Um, uh, but then but then the sparrows come and get you, uh, and time levels mountains. Um, anyway, anyway, um, and James, yes, uh, I do believe that it's time that is searching and hungry for the author. I don't think there's a separate it. Um, at, at least grammatically, time certainly would seem to be the antecedent of it, and I don't see any reason not to, not to believe that, um, in the context of the poem. Um, There seems to be an element of... I want to say despair, but I feel like that's too strong. Um, notice this is not... If the old man in question is like an old pre-Fremen regime person, um, this is not a conversion hymn, right? This is not a, oh, my days used to be as a desert, but then you know, like, the Arakeen Awakening happened, and now I, like, totally see the world in a richer way, right? Um, that doesn't seem to be the, um, the sense of it. If one is deeply moved, I don't think one is deeply moved in that way. Not deeply moved with devotion um, for, you know, like the signs and proofs and prophecies. Um, t 
Tom Hillman says weariness, possibly, possibly. Um, yeah. Um, Kevin Morgan, who is not going to stop trying to get me to read the sequels, says, there's a sequel that adds a lot of meaning and wonder to this. Very good, Kevin. What I would urge you, though, to keep in mind is that's a separate thing. What the ways in which a sequel builds on this is a separate thing and, 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 and a cool thing and great authors do that really, really well. But one of the reasons I'm pushing so hard against that, the one reason I'm resisting so hard, bringing in talk of the sequels, even those sequels that I have read, um, is the fact that it confuses the issue. You can't... S- it's not true to say that the stuff you learn later in the sequel is what this poem means. No, it's what the poem means from the point of view of that sequel, but that's a different thing. You have this poem first, and you have this poem in the context of this book, and we must first consider the context of this poem in this book. Then we can look at levels of meaning that are added to it later on, and the addition of those levels of meaning is itself an act of you know, retcon subcreation, which I love that kind of thing. Um, so, again, I'm not trying to... Um, I, I hope you don't think I'm trying to suggest that, you know, when I talk about adding meaning retroactively, that I'm in any way disparaging that meaning. I, I, I find that kind of retconning one of the highest levels of world building. Um, it's one of the things that 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 Tolkien was was supremely good at. Um, but I, uh, um, it is not certainly not from the reader's perspective a part of the experience of this poem. So I'm highly resistant uh, to the idea of... um, I'm highly resistant to the idea of uh, going forward to the sequels, reading the sequels back into the original and saying, this is the true meaning of this original poem. No, no, it's it's a new meaning that's added on later on. Um, uh, James says that Herbert could have outlined these things before writing the original... Maybe, but uh, that's um, first of all two things. One, I find that most readers really want to view or tend to view, especially works that are written in a series over time, as a much more um, cohesive whole than I think is really fair. Um, readers like because it's simpler and not only simpler it seems kind of cooler I don't even know exactly I'm not going to try to psychoanalyze the reason but but the the trend I'm very convinced of that readers tend and my experience of teaching literature and listening to students and listening to other critics and talking to people um, that readers tend to make the assumption or want to believe even that the entirety of an author's work kind of sprang from their head in this sort of unified whole that everybody knows it took some time to write it, right? But they want to treat the whole thing as one solid, cohesive unit. Um, And will sometimes even get offended when uh, people... um, when people suggest that uh, they made stuff up as they went along. I remember... Uh, I wrote this article 
where was it? It was in like the Washington Post or something um, about Harry Potter when the last Harry Potter film came out. They asked me to write about Harry Potter, and I like made a reference in my article to how like she was like obviously. Um, you know, developing the stories that went along and, you know, that it, you know, a lot of things gained in significance and she had to do a lot of retcon in the later books. And, like, Harry Potter fans came out of the woodworks to yell at me for suggesting that she did not have, like, all seven books, every single element of all seven books, like, in her mind from day one. And I was like, um, I, you know, uh, seriously was trying to compliment her by saying that. I think she retconned real skillfully. Um, anyway, the second thing that I would say is I don't believe authors, <laughs> because when authors talk about this, they too tend to uh, speak as if it were more unified than it really is. Um, because they're looking back at the, all of their works in part through the lens of all the thinking that they've done beforehand, it's very difficult for the author himself to get out of the experience of, uh, you know, of sort of where they are in their own chronological development of the story in their minds over time and really return themselves to the point of view that they were, you know, working with and, 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 and thinking through at the time when they wrote the early books uh, in... in, uh, in in the sequence. Um, one of the things which has really informed my own views of this is my work with Tolkien. With Tolkien, and thanks chiefly to the work of Christopher Tolkien, we have this really remarkable opportunity to study not just Tolkien's works, but the process of writing his works. The History of Middle-Earth series that Christopher Tolkien has published shows uh, enables us to walk through the development of most of Tolkien's story writing and thinking. And um, uh, and we, you know, th through that can really get a pretty clear glimpse of how much Tolkien didn't know. You know, when he wrote, you know, how many of the things that are going to make the story, you know, that are going to be become central pieces in the world later just aren't even there in his mind at all uh, earlier on. And yet he'll talk as if they always were there because from where he's sitting you know when he's 60 you know he's sort of now taking it for granted and can barely even put himself imaginatively back into the place where he was 40 years ago um, but when you go back and read the manuscripts that he wrote 40 years before you can see where he was um, anyway all of these things have uh, made me systematically skeptical of that kind of unified theory of story that authors will tend to promote sometimes. I mean, like J.K. Rowling has very actively promoted it. I mean, she's gone on record time and time again of talking about how she, like, totally planned everything way in advance, and, like, nothing at all was a surprise to her. And I'm just like, if you're fooling yourself, you're not fooling me. But, um, I mean, I've read the books. Um, but, um, anyway, uh, I, 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 there's, there's, so I'm resistant to that. I'm resistant to but again, I'm resistant to it not because, you know, my resistance to it comes not from a lack of respect for the books, but because actually, it, to me, it augments my respect for the book. So, Kevin, coming back to the poem and the way in which sequels help us to understand this, and Kevin, you had mentioned earlier specifically um, the way that the, 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 
reference to the horizons of Al-Kulab, which just gives a kind of an atmosphere, but an indeterminate atmosphere in the context of this poem, because I don't know what Al-Kulab is. It's not even in the, in, in the, in the, in the appendix. I, it doesn't help me, right? So, so I don't know what it is, but it does give this sense of, you know, it certainly gives the sense of untold story. There's this sort of air of mystery, like, what are the horizons of Al-Kulab? Kevin has said, when you, um, uh, when you read the sequels, and learn something about Al-Kulab, then it gives a, a new level of, of richness to the poem. Awesome! I love that! Um, then savor that, but savor that as additional levels being added, not as this is really what's behind Al-Kulab in the first place. As my suspicion is that if you really go back historically, most likely this reference comes first, and later on he's like... Uh, I should write a story about Al-Kulab. Um, at least it seems quite likely. Okay. Everybody's teasing me now for taking so much time talking about poetry. But come on, man! It's poetry! I, I've been, you have to admit, I've been pretty restrained. I mean, I, I've admitted that I'm not a huge fan of most of Herbert's poetry, so it's, 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 it's assisted me in resisting uh, 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 spending too much time on his poetry. But, uh, but you can't, uh, you know, you can't rush these things. Uh, and I always think that taking time to look at these things. Always worth it. We'll get there. We'll get there. I'm not worried. Um, but, uh, anyway. Um, okay. Let's, um... Hey, you want to move on to slide two? What do you say? Do you want to do slide two? Let's do that. On the subject of religious awakenings and uh, uh, the Arakeen mystical fusion, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says there's a slide too. I know it's kind of it's there's just kind of twice as much to talk about tonight. Um, I want to look at the moment of Jessica's confirmation of the you know when she's really on the spot and she's got to prove they're looking for a sign that she is the Reverend Mother. Uh, looking at what happens there in that scene. She sensed his impatience, knew that the day moved ahead, and men waited to seal off this opening. This was a time for boldness on her part, and she realized what she needed. Some some Dar al-Hikman, some school of translation that would give her a dab, she whispered. Her mind felt as though it had rolled over within her. She recognized the sensation with a quickening of pulse. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit teaching carried such a signal of recognition. It could only be the adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. She gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. Ibn Kirtaiba, she said, as far as the spot where the dust ends. She stretched out an arm from her robe, seeing Stilgar's eyes go wide. She heard a rustling of many robes in the background. I see a... Fremen, with the Book of Examples, she intoned. He reads to Alat, the son whom he defied and subjugated. He reads the Sadus of the Trial, and this is what he reads. Mine enemies are like green blades eaten down, that did stand in the path of the tempest. Hast thou not seen what our Lord did? He sent the pestilence among them, that did lay schemes against us. They are like birds scattered by the huntsmen. Their schemes are like pellets of poison that every mouth rejects. A trembling passed through her. She dropped her arm. Okay. What just happened there? 
What just happened there? How would you characterize this scene? Neil Ottenstein says prophecy in action. Philip Menzies at the same time says charlatan. That's the question, right? Um, is this charlatanism? Is she doing what she called before in her conversation with the shit out mapes? Did she is, is she is she playing out the sham? Is that uh, is that what's happening? <laughs> Benny Jesuit witch says Tom Hillman. Um, Patrick Summers is inclined to think this is not a sham, that this is not her training. Michael Cheskovsky says she seems to be swept up in a genuine experience. Um, the Adab. Um, yes. Now, I think there's clearly some of both here. On the one hand, she is. She, you know, we've we've just heard before her reflecting on what a great job the Missionaria Protectiva did. She knows the kinds of things that she's supposed to say. Um, she recites the, you know, the 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 right words here, and she suggests later on that she was doing this because she knew they were the right words. So, in other words, that this is deliberate manipulation on her part, but. I agree with the people who say that there's more to it than that. Um, as Patrick quotes, she's giving herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. Um, yes, yes. Um, Neil says she was searching for something to prove, but when she found it, it overwhelmed her. Um, yes, yes. It's it's the adab, the demanding memory. Um, she needs to be bold. She realizes what she needed. See, it's... The beginning here is what I find most interesting. She realized what she needed. Some Dar al-Hikman. Some school of translation that would give her... Um, and the Dar al-Hikman, the school of translation, like some kind of word pattern which is going to satisfy them. Remember, she was doing this kind of thing with the shit out mapes, right? When she was saying things which would strike the right note with Mapes, right? So that Mapes would be awed by it. Um, even when she, Jessica didn't fully know always what she was saying, but she's like, ah, eh, this sounds good. Um, but yeah, then, as Philip Lord points out, we get the ellipsis, right? Um, I don't... Th- I, and, and I think that if we if we take that simply to be a continuous sentence, we misunderstand it. That is, if we say... She realized what she needed. Some Dar al-Hikman, some school of translation that would give her a dab. No, I don't think so at all. That would give her... There was going to be another ending to that sentence, right? That would give her an event, that would give her the words that she needed, that would give her, uh, you know, the ability to uh, fulfill their whatever. But instead, what she gets, what she is given, is a dab the demanding memory. The adab is a big deal. I mean, as it's described here, it's a big deal. Um, And we get this description of something happening to her. Her mind rolls over within her. She recognizes the sensation. This next sentence I also find ambivalent, or ambiguous, rather. Nothing in all the Bene Gesserit... I have a bad habit of uh, saying the wrong word 
between ambivalent and ambiguous, which really mean different things. Uh, anyway, nothing in all the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition. Wait, so does that mean nothing else in the Bene Gesserit training carried such a signal of recognition, so that it's part of the Bene Gesserit training? Or it's separate from it? Nothing in all of the Bene Gesserit training carried such a, sig- a, a signal. You know, this thing, which is outside the training, does, but nothing... Uh, I find that sentence ambiguous. I'm not sure whether to understand that this is something that's part of the training. It seems to me likely, based on the second sentence, she recognized the sensation. That seems to me to suggest that the Bene Gesserit training has included the recognition of the Adab, but not necessarily the bringing forth of the Adab. And certainly, the Adab, as it's described, is not a piece of manipulation. It's not a sham. It's not a piece of charlatanism that you put on. It could only be the adab, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself, not something that you dredge up, not something that you figure out, not a, you know a piece of baloney that you throw out there and expect people to go along with, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself, and she gave herself up to it, allowing the words to flow from her. What she says, at least right away, what she says right here, is not based on the context that we're given there, based on the description, that's not her being a charlatan. That's not her. But again, does it pass into that? At some point, it kind of seems to. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and Philip, I agree. This does not sound like something that could be trained. Um, no, if it comes upon you, the definition of the adab is the, the demanding memory that comes upon you of itself. By then, by definition, it can't be called up, right? Um, yeah, and Michael, I agree. My interpretation of that first ellipsis is that she suddenly realizes what is happening to her as she is searching for the appropriate piece of charlatanism, right? The appropriate, the best, the, the the most, you know, accurately calculated thing to say. As she's searching for that, instead, she finds the adab come upon her. In other words, while she's sitting there saying, all right, I'm supposed to say something portentous and, like, maybe prophetic now. That's what they're expecting. So I gotta think of something that's gonna sound all portentous and prophetic, and as she's casting about for something to say, she finds herself saying something portentous and prophetic. And that seems to me to be what we've seen from the beginning, in that conversation with the shit-out mapes, right? In a small way, that first time, right, when she accidentally said, you know, when she thought she was saying a cunning thing, um, but then it turned out that she had by accident said the key word that Mapes had been waiting for her to hear, uh, w- waiting to hear her say, right? Even though she had not been really meaning to say that at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, she seems to be dragged along by this. So again, in the very context of her trying to put on an act, the thing comes upon her. And it seems that the prophecy is actually fulfilled. Um, so what has happened here? Has she convinced them? Has she taken them in? Has she suckered the Fremen as she was planning, based on the foundation laid by the 
missionaria protectiva that she's now suckered the fremen into thinking that you know she's this you know she's she's a sayadina and can be uh, you know taken to become their reverend mother and make a place you know among them um or is she the one and is the prophecy fulfilled um yeah yeah now james points out here as somebody was pointing to before um that ellipsis before Fremen. Um, James says it sounds like uh, it sounds like a fill in the blank. I see a Fremen. Um, that's one way to interpret that. I'm, I'm not completely convinced. I see a Fremen. I mean, like first of all, if she's being a Charlemagne, and she's a pretty incompetent Charlemagne, if she's got to reach for that, right? And she's talking to the Fremen. You'd think that that would be the easiest word off her lips if she were just making it up, right? Um, but notice also, after the ellipsis, we get the image of Fremen with the Book of Examples. Um, it seems to be... So we can either see her pause there to be like, hang on, wait, shoot, got to think of something, or as her trying to process this thing that she's seeing... Um, Philip, uh, Philip Lord thinks that she's surprised herself as well as the Fremen. Um, yeah, Patrick, I, 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 I do incline, Patrick Summers is very much of the opinion that Jessica's not really driving the bus here. I don't go there 100%. Again, I do think that she takes this and runs with it. Um, and I think that she is doing stuff out of her training and the you know, her background understanding of the Missionaria Protectiva. By the time we get to the end of this scene, she is ritually performing something that she knows she's got them hooked and she knows what she needs to do in order to complete the ritual. She recognizes the ritual and goes through with it. But that's not where it starts. And I do think that where it starts does seem to pr to surprise her as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... After all, one of the things that it seems that we have seen with Paul and Paul's visions has been the fact that the Bene Gesserit are themselves, though from their perspective, right, from within their grid, they're the ones who are the manipulators of all other things, right? Um, we begin to see, and I think we're invited to see through some of Paul's visions, that it might not, that might not in fact be the whole truth. That they themselves might be the instruments. They might be merely agents and not the principles. Um, the manipulators might themselves be being manipulated here. Um, and that this is yet another example, as Jessica herself representing the Bene Gesserit, in a sense representing the Missionaria Protectiva in this moment, nevertheless um, finds herself an instrument now, back to Princess Irulan for a second. Um, here I do think we see her being pretty overtly cynical. Prophecy and prescience, how can they be put to the test in the face of the unanswered question? Consider, how much is actual prediction of the waveform, as Muad'Dib referred to his vision image, and how much is the prophet shaping the future to fit the prophecy? What of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy? Does the prophet see the future? Or does he see a line of weakness, a fault or cleavage, that he may shatter with words or decisions, as a diamond cutter shatters his gem with a blow of a knife? 
does a prophet predict the future or make the future and make the future through the very act of prophesying that's how i understand harmonics right what of what of the harmonics inherent in the act of prophecy that is to say when the prophecy is uttered the ways in which that prophecy itself resonates it's a you know an image as if the vibration of the words of the prophet themselves the harmonics of his speech um you know can can create you know this sort of destructive resonance um you know, in the in the whole thing, Nancy says these questions seem totally unanswerable. Yes, yes, they do. Um, you know, I've said there just a minute ago that this sounds pretty cynical. Not necessarily complete. Ooh, James Stevens says it's like that's like the voice. I like that, James. I wasn't thinking of that connection, but you're right. Um, Harmonics, that's a word that's, that's a word used to talk about the voice, isn't it? I'm pretty sure that word is used at, at various points. Um, thinking of the voice of the prophet and the voice of the Bene Gesserit, um, and thinking of the Lizan al-Gaib as well, the voice from the outer world. Um, yeah, yeah, all of these things seem relevant. Um, we could read this as Princess Irawan being cynical, right? Her saying, her suggesting... There's not really a, like, you know, he he was a prophet in the sense that, like, he said things and they came true. But does that mean that he, you know, predicted the future? Does that mean that he, through his choices and actions, formed the future? Um, uh, it could be cynical. It could simply be that she, in fact, has a more profound understanding of what it is like for Paul. Uh, you know, that mere, perhaps her private reflections are relatively well-informed, as he is going to be thinking about um, uh, about these same kinds of things. Um, this question of cause and effect um, between the seer of the future and the chooser, uh, you know, the maker of decisions, um, is going to be, is, I think, one of the primary themes of this whole section um, of the book, and I think that we see it um, in a lot of Paul's own awareness uh, and his contemplation of his own awareness um, in, uh, in, in the rest of this section. Um, by the way, brief footnote, Private Reflections on Wadib, another new book by Princess Irulan. Um And that one's interesting. Who's the, who's the intended audience of this? Is this private in the sense of there is no audience? Like, is this like her, her, her own personal diary? I doubt it. Doesn't sound like it. Um, uh, for the benefit of the other Bene Gesserits? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But anyway... Um, Let's look at some other moments of Paul's awareness and you know keep these this cause and effect question in mind. We haven't yet really talked about the makers. We haven't talked about um, we haven't talked about the worms, and uh, so I wanted to at least look at. Uh, oh, sorry. Let me pause. Um, Sharon has just been typing the day uh, the day that wasn't it, is it the day the flesh makes and the flesh the day makes isn't it day and flesh weren't those the terms of Duke Leto's insight. Am I remembering that correctly? Shapes? Shapes, not makes. Yes. Shapes. Yeah, okay, right. The day this, the, 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 the flesh shapes, and the flesh the day shapes. Um, yeah, Sharon, 
Powell, very, very good. Um, we should definitely be recalling Duke Leto's final insight before his death, um, as that certainly seems relevant to the same cause and effect question. Um, he seemed to be thinking about the same kinds of things that Princess Irawan was <clears throat> reflecting about in her private reflections, presumably years later. Um, anyway, um, we haven't really looked at the worms, so I wanted to... Uh, uh, this confrontation with the worm seems to be an important moment. Um, there is... You know, I don't want to... Uh, um, I don't want to make too much of this. I find myself feeling the same kind of resistance to this particular interpretation that I often felt in high school English classes. Um, uh, where it sometimes seemed to me that my teachers were making too much of stuff. But um, this moment seems like a turning point. Um, you can say that they become Fremen, you know, that Paul and Jessica become people of Arrakis when they, you know, when they pass through the storm, right? And they crash in the storm and, you know, they uh, they start living off their still suits and their still, you know, and within their still tent, you know, and they sort of focus on that. Um, but this moment, when they've made that crossing, and they've done a Fremen thing for the first time, that is, they've just used a thumper and uh, uh, gone across the sand without getting eaten by a worm, um, they've been sort of acting uh, in, the, in the Fremen way, um, and they're just about to meet the Fremen um, and be taken in among the Fremen, and, but this... Um, this confrontation uh, with this face-to-face -face, uh, confrontation with the worm is you know, sort of the moment right in the middle of that. Um, because it seems to me the change really seems to sort of happen after this. I mean, yes, they were alone in the desert, but they were still living more like Atreides and Bene Gesserits before. It wasn't the ways of the desert that they were utilizing. You know, when Paul was you know, saving Jessica from the sandfall and, uh, you know, thinking of a clever way to uh, dig out the lost pack. Um, they, um, uh, he wasn't thinking like a Fremen. He wasn't acting like a Fremen. They weren't really living in a Fremen way yet. Now they've taken their first steps. And as several of you are pointing out, they're not extremely competent steps, right? They stumble on drum sand. Um, uh, you know, as, as uh, Philip Menzies says, every, every Fremen child knows this. Uh, yes, yes. And they don't... Um, they, uh, they, they do have maker hooks, actually, Neil. Uh, he enlisted that as one of the things in the Frem kit that he had. But he doesn't have any idea what they are or what to do with them. Um, but um, anyway... But let's look at the passage a little more. Where the dunes began, perhaps fifty meters away, at the foot of a rock beach, a silver-gray curve broached from the desert, sending rivers of sand and dust cascading all around. It lifted higher, resolved into a giant, questing mouth. It was a round black hole, with edges glistening in the moonlight. The mouth snaked toward the narrow crack where Paul and Jessica huddled. Cinnamon yelled in their nostrils. Moonlight flashed from crystal teeth. Back and forth the great mouth wove. Paul stilled his breathing. Jessica crouched, staring. It took intense concentration of her Bene Gesserit training to put down the primal terrors, subduing a race-memory fear that threatened to fill her mind. Paul felt a kind of elation. In some recent instant he had crossed a time barrier into more unknown territory. He could sense the darkness ahead, nothing revealed to his inner eye. 
It was as though some step he had taken had plunged him into a well, or into the trough of a wave where the future was invisible. The landscape had undergone a profound shifting. Okay. Um, Neil Ottenstein is interested in the reference to the race memory fear. Um, yeah, me too. Um, notice we don't see Jessica aware of the race consciousness as Paul is aware of it, but we see her, in a sense, uh, subject to it. Um, uh, um, Kevin Walker says, I was wondering if Paul loses his sight of the future now that his fate is in the hands of something not human. The, um, the last slide would imply that Paul's future vision is really just an innate knowledge of human nature expressed visually, and that wouldn't apply to the worms. I don't necessarily think so. I'm not sure, maybe it's possible, but I'm not sure that we can detect that clear of a pattern in these moments of unknown territory, this kind of time darkness, when Paul goes into a trough, as he describes it, you know, one of those wrinkles, remember the, you know, time and space stretching out before him like the, like the kerchief, I almost said handkerchief again, the kerchief that's waving in the wind, right, waving and flapping in the wind, when he goes down into those, um, he, uh, um, he can't see far around him on either side. Um, and I'm not sure that we can see so clear a correlation between like what things in his immediate circumstances precipitate him into one of those troughs. Um, but my question is, why is Paul elated? What's Paul so excited about? His mom's terrified, right? You know, she has this uh, this primal terror, which seems perfectly warranted, by the way. Um, and uh, and here's Paul. He's he's, you know, excited. He's cheerful about this. I incline to agree with you, Neil. Neil says uh, uh, he see, uh, there's a possible escape from the from the future. Um. That's one of the fascinating things about it. Um, Paul felt a kind of elation. At first, it sounds like it's a reaction to the to the worm, right? I've always wanted to see a sandworm this close up. That's so cool! I can imagine a fifteen-year-old boy saying that in the face of a sandworm. Um, but that doesn't seem to be what it's talking about in the end. Paul felt a kind of elation. In some recent instant, he had crossed a time barrier into more unknown territory. That seems to be the fact that nothing is revealed to his inner eye, um, as though some step that he had taken had plunged him into a well, um, which I can't help but notice is very similar to how the mouth of the worm is described, right? This uh, round black hole with edges glistening in the moonlight kind of look like the edges of a well, you know, like a round well stretching down into darkness. Um, so it's almost like he has been swallowed by the worm. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, Philip Lord says uh, plunging into a well would not elate me. No, me neither. But remember, um, he's afraid of the future. Oh boy, what an oversimplification that is. 
he sees what's coming. He feels that the race. He feels that his terrible purpose, this race consciousness, is driving him on. He is the instrument of the race consciousness to bring about. He's been infected. Remember, twice we've gotten that. Um, he's been infected with this race consciousness with this terrible purpose, and he now perceives that that terrible purpose, what this is all pushing towards, is the jihad. Right, that he is going to be the instrument of bringing about you know this bloody war across the across the galaxy, and he doesn't want that. It must not be, he says. So, it seems to me that crossing into an unknown territory seems to be what elates... What elates? Can you be elated? Like, can something elate you? Can elate as a verb... Can that be used as a transitive verb? Can it take a direct object? I mean... Hmm. Anyway... Um, so that's how I would understand his being elated by plunging into a well, um, which I agree is seems a little bit counterintuitive, Philip. Um, uh, but uh, interesting, Tom Hillman says the use of well, which would which we associate with water, almost forces us to see the wave as a literal wave that is not just as a mathematical image of a wave, um, but the trough of an actual wave, like an ocean wave. Um, um, which, as Tom points out, are both in, would both be interesting metaphors uh, on Arrakis. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Nancy is suggesting that I just, uh, as Tolkien would say, arrogate to myself the power of Humpty Dumpty and uh, make the word mean whatever I want it to mean. Um, but you're right, Philip. That kind of imagery would be normal from somebody who grew who grew up on Caledon. So, but that itself, Philip, would be interesting, right? Because that would suggest that even in the very sort of imagery of his mind, he's thinking like a Caledonian here, right? These are not really Arrakis thoughts, um, which is interesting, like with a sandworm looming up over you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, more. More of Paul's vision. Paul took a deep breath, trying to still the tempest within him. His mother's words had locked onto the working of the spice essence. Oh, context, we're in, the, we're in the cave. This is right after um, right after she's done her thing. She's had her adab and she's done the whole like ritual prayer thing uh, with Stilgar and the other Fremen are really impressed. And then we switch back to Paul and he's just been given the food by uh, by Cheney, uh, and um, I think it's a long A, Cheney, not Chani. Um, anyway, if you have good reason to think things are pronounced a different way than I'm pronouncing them, you can feel free to correct me or make your case. Um, I, I, I don't consider myself an expert in doing pronunciations. Um, anyway, um, Cheney's just given him the food, which is just soaked in spice essence, which, you know, more so than, uh, um, than he... Uh, um, than he's ever had before. And he's been hearing his mom do this thing, and so, okay. Paul took a deep breath, trying to still the tempest within him. His mother's words had locked onto the working of the spice essence, and he had felt her voice rise and fall within him like the shadows of an open fire. Through it all, he had sensed the edge of cynicism in her. He knew her so well. But nothing could stop this thing that had begun with a morsel of food. Terrible purpose. 
He sensed it, the race consciousness that he could not escape. There was the sharpened clarity, the inflow of data, the cold precision of his awareness. He sank to the floor, sitting with his back against rock, giving himself up to it. Awareness flowed into that timeless stratum where he could view time, sensing the available paths, the winds of the future, the winds of the past, the one-eyed vision of the past, the one-eyed vision of the present, and the one-eyed vision of the future, all combined in a trinocular vision that permitted him to see time become space. Okay. Um... What do we see here? Again, you know, we've seen so much of this. We've seen so much. You know, I, I want to be as we go through the book, following. Um, I found, as much as I, uh, you know, loved Dune and was interested in Dune from the first time I read it, I recognize, looking back on it, that these passages, you know, with like Paul's awareness and his prescient visions and stuff. Um, I recognize in myself in my early readings of the book a tendency to just kind of go blah 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 when Paul starts doing his visionary thing um, I mean I recognize again in retrospect looking back that you know those passages are really kind of skimmed over and it was just like Paul sees the future has this experience he's really moved uh, poor Paul okay he doesn't want the future to happen moving on and I, I just wanted to get on with the story um but I do, um, uh, uh, I do want to really try to unpack it because I do the more you know more and more I feel like this is really uh, we need to be paying attention, paying careful attention to this. This is in one sense I think the central drama of this um, story, and it's one of the things that I think makes for the incredible depth of this story is that we have... This is not just a story that takes place on multiple levels in the sense of having a literal story that also has, like, a moral significance and, and these other kind of interpretive levels that we can do. Like, at the same time, we can, we can read the story on its own level and appreciate it, but we can also read it on sort of a higher symbolic level and get some other really interesting things out of it. This is a story that insists that demands to be, demands, like the Adab, demands to be read on more than one level within its own context. That is, this is a story not just about, um, you know, if this is a story of Arrakis awakening, to go back to Princess Eroan, we see that happening in so many different ways, right? It's a, it's, it's a story of political revolution, right? It's a story of you know, sort of Paul's own personal, you know, it's like the building's Roman of Paul, right? But it's also the story of, you know, it, it's not just the story of what's happening here on, on Arrakis and is Paul going to survive? It's a story about the whole future and everything that's going to come. Um, anyway. Um, so, just trying to explain why I want us to be tracking this stuff really carefully. So when you come across passages like this, I want you to be thinking about them in advance um, before we uh, uh, before we get to them, because you can know I'm going to want to talk about them. Um, so, and and in particular, what what I want to look at is the progression. Do we see simple repetition? That is, do we see Paul having the same kind of experience, or does his experience change? What is his relationship with the race consciousness, with the terrible purpose? 
how do we see that developing over the course of the story? Um, what kinds of decisions, what kind of experience does he have of it? Um, okay. Um, good. James is noticing that he gives himself up to the race consciousness here. Um, as Jessica gives herself up to the Adab. And James, I agree, it is the way in which this experience of Paul's seems to come from outside him, right? Seems to be something which is done to him, of which he is merely the instrument or or, or the conduit or the receiver, um, which leads me to place so much emphasis on the Adab, to, to really see Jessica as being merely the mouthpiece of something else rather than um, you know, performing her own show there. Um, because the Adab, and the way that she sort of surrenders herself to the Adab and just lets it flow out of her, is like Paul's relationship, except he doesn't, in general, categorically just want to let it happen. But notice specifically, what he um, gives himself up to is this awareness. And remember, we saw this before, right? Remember back to the very end of book one, the first time we were looking at what looked like Paul's own awakening, right, in the still tent after they, uh, you know, have uh, have killed their Harkonnen captors and escaped. Um, we got Paul doing his supermentat thing, and initially that his observations, right, his hyper-awareness of all of the things around him and all of the factors and all the observations that he's made, um, these things seem to be you know, again, you had like the super Mentat stuff, the super Bene Gesserit stuff, and but then you had this higher awareness, right? This prescient awareness, and then the relationship with the race consciousness and his terrible purpose and all that. Notice the way that it works here is a little bit different. He senses the race consciousness that he could not escape. There was the sharpened clarity, the inflow of data, the cold precision of his awareness, the supermentat stuff. So now he perceives that the supermentat stuff, this inflow of data that he is processing, this higher awareness that he had come to, that had happened to him um, there previously in the tent, it's not just this which brings him to the recognition of the race consciousness. The race consciousness does it? You know, again, it's not just that the the terrible purpose is the end goal towards which he is pushing or being drawn, um, but this very awareness, this the, his taking in of data, is itself a manifestation. It seems of this race consciousness that he could not escape. Um, what I'm um, uh, what I'm trying to get at clumsily here is I think we see reason to sort of unify the things that we saw in Paul's experience at the end of book one a little bit more clearly here. And now all of that, again, like the Supermentat stuff, as well as the prescient vision stuff, um, all seems to be being brought together into his awareness of the race consciousness, the race consciousness that he could not escape. Because again, it's happening to him as it did back then in the tent. Um, when he gives himself up to it, right, um, his awareness floats into that timeless stratum where he can view time, so now he's looking at time, and we see this trinocular vision, right? Um, 
Good. Don Standing says he's not seeking his terrible purpose. The terrible purpose is stalking him. Yes, exactly. Or coming upon him, uh, pushing him. Um, Michael Cheskovsky says, I'm still confused as to what race he is conscious of. Humans. As opposed to animals, I guess. Remember, that's where we started the book, the human versus animal thing. Um, and the, it was the human race that the Bene Gesserits were attempting to uh, preserve or perfect, and the Kwisatz Haderach was supposed to be that. Um, ah, Nancy's pointing out that the race consciousness seems to be stalking him uh, as the as time stalks the speaker in the old man's hymn. I like that. I like it. Um... Yeah, as a it's searching, it's search and hunger for me. Uh, we don't see hunger exactly, but it's it, it's still an interesting parallel, I think. Um, more, more. Let's continue on here. Keep going in the same passage. There was danger he felt of overrunning himself, and he had to hold on to his awareness of the present, sensing the blurred deflection of experience, the flowing moment, the continual solidification of that which is into the perpetual was. I could sit and think about the phrase, the hyphenated phrase, perpetual was, for a long time, I think and not be sure that I've made a lot of sense of it. But anyway, in grasping the present, he felt for the first time the massive steadiness of time's movement everywhere, complicated by shifting currents, waves, surges, and countersurges, like surf against rocky cliffs. Look, Tom, see? The wave? It is a surf imagery. It's, it, it is a surf image. It, it, the, the wave thing is an ocean image. That seems, at least it is, certainly is here. It gave him a new understanding of his, pres- of his prescience. And he saw the source of blind time, the source of error in it, with an immediate sensation of fear. The prescience, he realized, was an illumination that incorporated the limits of what it revealed, at once a source of accuracy and meaningful error. A kind of Heisenberg indeterminacy intervened. The expenditure of energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw. Okay. Um, he has to hold on to his awareness of the present. He feels the danger of overrunning himself that is of being so caught up in this view of the whole of time that he loses the, his grip on where he is and what's going on around him um, sensing the blurred deflection of experience the flowing moment um, the continual solidification of that which is into the perpetual was. In general terms he's talking about the present becoming the past, right? The flowing moment the moment the present, that which is, is always a fleeting thing, right? You can never think about or talk about the present moment without having to suddenly look at it in the background, right? I mean, the, t- the point at which, you know, like when you talk about the time now, well, it's already gone, right? And you just, as soon as you say the word now, it's finished already. Um, that which is, is always passing, and I love that 
image of solidification, right? It doesn't just become, or it's not just turned into, or flows into the perpetual was. It is solidified. The present is solidified into the past, because the present is malleable, and the past is not malleable. Um, okay. Uh, in grasping at the present, therefore, he feels for the first time the massive steadiness of time's movement everywhere complicated by shifting currents, recognizing how malleable the present is. He can sense that time is shifting. Currents, waves, surges, countersurges. Um, he now recognizes that his view of the future is not simple. It's not simple. So it's not just like, this is what's going to happen in the future, and I can see what's going to happen in the future. The source of blind time, the source of error in it, he can see all these things, can understand all these things. Because his prescience is an illumination that incorporated the limits of what it revealed. At once a source of accuracy and of meaningful error. By seeing the future, you change the energy. The energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw, referring to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Um, that the energy required to illuminate a thing, you know, when you shine a photons on a particle, which is the only way you can perceive where they are and where they're going, changes the movement because it changes the energy state of the particle, and so it, it changes the motion of that particle. Um, you know, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says you cannot both, you know, you cannot know the position and, and movement of a particle without changing the position and movement of that particle. Um, so, you are always either ignorant of it or you've changed it. Um, and yes, both Tom and Sarah Lagarde are thinking back to um, are thinking back to Princess Irulan, that that seemed to be what she was saying, you know, in that uh, um, epigram that we were looking at just a little while back um, about the prophecy and uh, the relationship between prophecy and the future. Question here, though. Why isn't Paul elated? I mean, I'd think if you get elated when you move into a little trough, right? When you fall into a well, um, or are confronted by a sandworm, or both, if that elates you, shouldn't this elate him? I mean, if his whole thing is, hey, uh, the jihad is coming, I don't want it to come. This is the terrible purpose with which I've been infected. I want to resist it. Wouldn't this be really exciting? Wouldn't he be really pumped to recognize that Time's movement is everywhere complicated by shifting currents, waves, surges, and countersurges. Isn't that good news? But instead it gives him an immediate sensation of fear. Why is it not good news? James says the future is not a map he can follow. He's responsible for it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it, James? There's a kind of, there's a kind of irony there, right? Um, that on the one hand he wants to take action, right? He want, he's, keeps saying things like, 
it must not be. Um, I, you know, I it, it can't. I, I cannot allow that future to happen. Like he wants the power to be able to change what's going to happen. That's what he wants, right? But then there's a that that's a that's a two-edged sword, though, right? Because if he does, in fact, have the power to influence the future, then he has the responsibility. If he, in fact, is powerless to change the future, well, then the jihad isn't his fault, right? But if he can, then it would be. Um, Brandon is thinking, no, it's perhaps because the myriad of possibilities and ramifications are scary... Um, right, that he's 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 afraid of the the possible errors, right? Knowing how easy it would to, to for error to sort of enter in, um, in that sense, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that that's possible. Um, you could see it as a kind of swing of the pendulum swinging back in the other direction, right? First, him being like, "Oh crap, I, you know, I can't fight the future, and I'm being pushed towards this end, and I wish I could avoid it, but I'm afraid that I can't." And then him seeing now, "Whoa, holy cow! Actually, everything is indeterminate, and um, everything is, you know, like who knows what could happen? Everything could get screwed up. Something even worse could happen." Um, so fatalism leads him to one kind of despair and then, you know, the opposite of that, the sense of the complete indeterminacy of things, seems to send him to a different flavor of despair. Um, or at least a fear. Um, that's, uh, uh, that's, um, that's possible. That's possible. Um, I like that. Don Standing says, if we think of the future being like a sandworm, is Paul the worm, or is Paul riding the worm? If he's riding it, is he controlling it? Is he steering the worm? Um, Don, I do think that that metaphor, the metaphor of the Fremen guiding the worms, um, is an important... That concept, that image, is, I think, a really important image uh, in this book. And I think... I do, Don, connect it with the time issues here. Um, and remember, we already got a, I, what I think is a glimpse of that. What seems to me that non-coincidental juxtaposition of the, 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 the round black hole of the sandworm's mouth and the well of time that he um, sees himself falling down into um, or plunging into. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Let's um. Let's keep going. Um, the expenditure of energy that revealed what he saw changed what he saw. And what he saw was a time nexus within this cave, a boiling of possibilities focused here, wherein the most minute action, the wink of an eye, a careless word, a misplaced grain of sand, moved a gigantic lever across the known universe. Okay, Brandon, in those terms, that's a, it's a little scary. It's a little scary. He saw violence with the outcome subject to so many variables that his slightest movement created vast shiftings in the pattern. The vision made him want to freeze into immobility, but this, too, was action with its consequences. 
the countless consequences. Lines fanned out from this cave, and along most of these consequence lines he saw his own dead body with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound. The complete indeterminacy, or the level of indeterminacy, frightens him. A gigantic, you know, the smallest, the minute, most minute action. And talk about responsibility, right? This is much more than just, oh, if something bad comes out, then it might be my fault. Um, this is, uh, um, this is the sense of consequences, Brandon, as you're saying, yeah. Um, that any action, the unintended consequences, that not just that he might his plans might not work, or he might screw it up. They might screw screw it up by accident. That something random and totally unanticipated could happen if he screws... I mean, like, the idea of the very smallest thing, the wink of an eye, a misplaced grain of sand, you know, these things could have huge impacts on all of the future to come. That this, this uh, cave is in a time nexus. Um, yeah... Kevin says he stands on the edge of a knife. Now you're making the Tolkien references, not me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree that uh, this is scary, but here's here's to me the sort of interesting point here. When we look back at this, the you know lines fanned out the countless consequence lines fanned out from this cave and along most of these consequence lines he saw his own dead body with blood flowing from a gaping knife wound based on that statement it seems that we are invited to come to the conclusion that the balance of probability is that Paul is going to be killed in his knife fight with Jameis right Jameis is probably going to kill him he's the underdog in the fight with Jameis from a purely probability a pure probability standpoint, right? Um, That seems to be what's uh, suggested there. But the actual knife fight with Jameis doesn't really seem to back that up. If we hadn't gotten this passage, I never would have come to that conclusion from the description of the knife fight with Jameis. I mean, when he actually fights Jameis, it's like, what are the odds that that happened differently? Like, seriously? There's a probable world in which Paul gets... Paul loses to Jameis in that fight? Um, Paul, uh, uh, Paul trounced Jameis in that fight. Right? I mean, the only question was, like, why did he toy with him so long? Why didn't he kill him right away? Um, does anybody watching that fight felt like there was any likelihood of Jameis coming out and winning? Right? As Neil says, they think, he, they think he's, he's playing with him. Um, so that seems unlikely Um, James Stephen says there are a couple people who are uh, James and um, uh, Kevin Walker uh, suggesting that um, uh, this is not uh this is not the um, knife fight that he's talking about. 
I think that's possible. But at the same time, I'm resistant to that. I'm resistant to saying that it simply refers to a future time and not to the fight with Jameis that's about to come up. Um, I'm resistant to that because of the context, because of what he, the time nexus within this cape. We just have that whole paragraph about how crucial are the events of this moment, right? Of this time in the cave. How the outcome of what's going to happen here in the cave is going to have this like huge significance. Um, uh, um, th- I'm not saying that I don't think it's relevant to a later fight. I do think it's relevant to that. But I don't think it's only relevant to that. Um, <laughs> this is the second time. I, 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 I think I've been forgetting to remind you guys that there is a there is a chat room available if you want to talk to each other during the class. If you go to the MythGuard.org, um, MythGuard Academy page, um, it'll 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 direct you to the little. You'll see the little bouncing chat window in the corner. You can talk to each other uh, during class. I'm reminded of this because this is the second time now that uh, uh, Neil and uh, Neil Ottenstein and uh, Kevin Morgan, who are clearly both in there, keep tattling on each other and uh, bringing forward a point that the other one has made in the in the. Uh, <laughs> In the, in the chat um, there. Um, so uh, Neil says that Kevin says that uh, one escape from the future would be letting Jameis kill him. That seems to me very possible. Um, and I think it's a kind of a counterintuitive interpretation, but I think it's that strikes me as more satisfying than almost any other. Like, again, I, I, I have a really hard time envisioning that the actual, you know, that, like, if if the Vegas odds makers were, you know, were laying odds on the Jameis-Paul fight, th- like, only the dumbest odds maker in the world would, 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 I mean, maybe a Fremen would, because they don't know Paul and they know Jameis, and remember, they're all surprised that he killed Jameis without a mark on him. But, um... But still, uh, you know, it's pretty clear when it actually happens that it's a pretty big mismatch. Um, however, if we think about it, in, but, but nevertheless, I think we're sort of tempted to see it that way because of Paul's fear, right? You know, he's terrified and he doesn't want to screw things up. And then we're just told that his, you know, many of his, of the possible futures, um, you know, these consequence lines show him bleeding to death from a knife wound. In the context of his fear and his dread and his uncertainty, um, uh, it seems natural to come to the to to either come to the conclusion or make the assumption that he's afraid to die, right? That he thinks he's probably going to die and he's afraid to die. But I'm not at all. Sh- I mean, I agree with Neil's point about Kevin's point that uh, that this is likely not what is actually activating Paul. Um, he could allow himself to be killed. Um, 
that would that's a way out right you know is he contemplating suicide here I don't know um well I got closer admitted I got closer to the end of what I wanted to talk about than you thought I would um <laughs> an hour ago but uh the last thing that I wanted to discuss tonight um you know for this section was of course the stuff about Paul's naming um no good uh no good Tolkien scholar no careful reader in general but certainly no Tolkien scholar is going to pass over the naming scene um so I certainly want to go back and talk about his names and his naming um but um anyway uh, we will uh uh, we'll start with that next time and then go into their first uh, experience and w- focusing a lot on uh, on Jessica's experience, of course, with her whole Reverend Mother thing. So <clears throat> we'll look at that stuff next time. And uh, thanks, everybody, for a uh, great discussion tonight. I really enjoy, I hope... Uh, I hope you also enjoyed uh, a close examination of, of the old man's hymn uh, tonight. Uh, as I said, I haven't indulged in any close poetry reading yet uh, in this class, so uh, I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope that you guys did too. Um, anyway, thanks everybody, and I will see you guys next week for uh, a confident finish of, uh, of book two. I'm sure we'll get through, uh, we'll get through everything in book two next time. All right. Good night, everybody. Bye now.